chapter 1. It's interesting how, you know, we get to kind of pick which verses you're going to teach. You know, Tony goes around, gives you a list of passages that are open to be taught, and I happen to choose this one. Um, for me, for personal reasons, things that you know the Lord often deals with you uh, about. But let me go ahead and read the passage for you. So it says, that, so then, my beloved brethren, oh, sorry, verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, as I was going through this passage, um, I was thinking about James. And the book of James is an interesting epistle. Throughout the letter of James, he exhorts the believer. There's a lot of imperatives, commands. He says, do this, do that. Of course, I'm loosely paraphrasing. But it's as if he's telling the believer... This Christian life is totally doable. Yet in light of all this, there's a reality. There are obstacles in our life. And I wonder as he's writing this epistle, if he wrote this recounting in his mind's eye the memories he had of his older brother, his brother Jesus. And sometimes we forget that, don't we? We forget that Jude is his brother. We forget James is his brother. I forget that. I just pick up the epistle and start reading but I, I really try to pick up a, a book of the Bible, and I want to read personality. These are real people who lived in these events, and he grew up with Jesus. And what was that like growing up with Jesus? What was that like for James, being his little brother? No doubt it was a full house. I mean, I look at my own house. You know, when they were little, it wasn't so bad. But you have six kids and they get bigger and they eat more and they use the restroom more. So there's more. Um, but it's a full house. And I'm sure at that time, and, you know, Pete was talking about Israel, homes weren't very big. Matter of fact, they're very small. So it wasn't like Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and that was it. We forget that Jesus had four brothers and he must have had more than two sisters because it's plural, sisters. So he could have had two, three, four. We don't know how many sisters he had. We had James, Judas, Joseph, Simon, and, of course, his sisters. Yet he was the oldest brother. What was that like for James growing up in that home? Not knowing who he truly was. You know, he observed him as a teenager, becoming a young man sitting across the breakfast table or dinner table, looking at him, not knowing who he was. He thought, he's just my older brother. They played games. And I wonder, did he look up to him? I mean, after all, this is his brother. I mean, you know, when you look at siblings, and, you know, I look at my own home. All my, all my children look up to Marcus. I don't know why, but they do. It's, it's their older brother, and they love him. But it makes me think, did they, did they at first look at, with him, at him with that type of endearment? And as time went on, that kind of got jaded? I don't know. I don't know. Now, I'm sure there wasn't a symphony playing in the background when Jesus walked. I don't think that he washed the dishes telekinetically, that they were suspended in the air and things like that happened. I think it was a very normal home. I think there was a lot of laughter, a lot of... Poking, probing, maybe manhandling among boys. It was a real home. Now, I wonder, did Joseph and Mary ever tell them the story? I mean, come on, mom. Really? A virgin birth? Come on. 
Did they believe the story? Evidently, I don't think they did believe it. At least not immediately. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they did, they did believe the story. John 7 begins by telling us that the Jews were preparing for the, to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. And Jesus' brothers approached him and said, in verse 3, Depart from here, from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So at this point, we could tell that his siblings didn't believe in him. You almost get a sense of disdain emanating from them. It's much like Joseph's brothers back in the book of Genesis. God blessed everything Joseph did. I mean, he had the Midas touch. And we were told that his brothers were moved with envy, right? He was his father's favorite. They didn't like the, the dreams he was having because they kind of elevated him. And they, they, couldn't send, they didn't appreciate that. And they were moved with envy. And that's what rem, this reminds me of here. So what was it like for James? Especially when he came to understand that not only was this his older brother, but he, in fact, was the Messiah, the Son of God. What was that like for James? All of a sudden, man, the light came on. I mean, you try wrapping your mind around that one. This is your older brother. I mean, you probably kicked him. You probably, you probably tried to get him in trouble. And I'm sure he's recounting these things as a young man. All the things that he did with him. And seeing how he reacted as a person. Never sinning. Never caving into temptation. Saying the right things. And I wonder about that. I wonder what that was like for James. Especially as kids. In a real sense, we've all somewhat experienced something like that. You and I, before Christ, we lived a certain way, right? We come to him, we get saved. All of a sudden, the light comes on. And intuitively, in the back of our minds, I think God begins to reveal to us all those times that he was there. He was there in those moments where, man, potentially it could have been disastrous. Those times where you know, you know, no one has to tell you, God was there. And I think it was no different for James. God was somehow involved. And I think he sits there and I, be, I think he really blows a fuse. This is the son of God. I lived with him. He was under our roof. How did we miss it? My big brother really is the son of God. And we arrive, as it were, here in chapter 1, verse 16. And, and I have a couple of points that I want you to, for you note takers, to jot down. First, we're going to look at the protection in verse 16. The presence, not C-E, but T-S, verse 17. And the practical, verse 18 through 20. We're going to look at the first one, the protection. Notice here he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. In the King James, it says, do not err. The word is planeo. It carries the idea of being deceived or misled. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. It's, it's like talking to your kids. Don't be deceived. Who are you fooling? Don't fool yourself. That's what he's saying. Don't fool yourself. Deceived about what? Unfortunately, this actually goes back to the previous um, five verses. Uh, he's referring to verses 12 through 15. He's talking about temptation. He says, don't be deceived on that subject, on temptation. And I'm not going to get into all that. I'm sure that was last week's study. He says, but don't be deceived. Why? Don't be deceived over the issue of temptation because God is benevolent. Temptation, of course, arouses our flesh. But God is good. He is the one who's good. He is benevolent, as we're about to see. Temptations, on the other hand, entice you to sin. It arouses my flesh. And I could, I could just imagine James, as he's penning these words, he can remember 
never, ever seeing Jesus cave into temptation. He's sitting there going, man, that, that was it. That was the life right there. He lived life perfectly. He never caved into temptation. And the scripture is replete with warnings towards the people of God in respect to temptation. There are the external temptations, and then there are the internal temptations. Make no mistake about it. You and I will be tempted. Is it a sin to be tempted? No. It isn't a sin. Jesus was tempted, wasn't he? Do you, do you think we're above temptation? No way. We're all going to be tempted sometime, somewhere. Yet he never sinned. For those of you who, you know, younger, you may not know who Mae West is. But Mae West said, you know, I generally avoid temptation unless I can't resist it. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. I generally resist temptation unless I can't resist it. You want to know how temptation works? Take a look at verses 12 through 15 when you get a chance. It provides for us the workings of how a temptation works. And this is why James tells us, do not be deceived on this issue. When I think of temptation, I can't help um, going back to the first place where we read about it. And it's the Garden of Eden. Therein we read how Eve, being deceived or rather being misled by Satan, that serpent of old. And what was the first thing he said to Eve? Hey, Foxy. No. He said, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has God said? And think about that for a moment. Has God said? You know, I think far too often we really don't sit down and stew over the word of God. Because when you really begin to sit there and think about, has God said? It's an attack on the very nature and character of God. That God somehow is keeping you away from the experience. He's holding out something on you. You're not enjoying this thing. You're missing out on the experience. And that's the very same thing being asked of you today. Has God said? And that question is often asked as we're standing before our tree. You all have a tree. You can call it whatever you want. In, in her case, it was a tree. Whatever that proverbial thing is in your life, it's a tree. Okay? Whatever label you want to put on it. Pornography, big one today. It's a major, major issue. You guys have your phones, your laptops, and the private. I mean, I constantly counsel folks who come in my office because that is an issue that all men struggle with. Lust of the eyes. That's your tree. Men, other women, alcohol, drugs, whatever that tree is, that's the attraction. And Satan comes along, slithers up to you and he says, has God said you can't enjoy that thing? Because you're not experiencing it. And you could. It's right there. And our culture is right there, ready to give it to you. You know, um, I'm, re I'm sold out on that idea. I'm sold out. And that, that is the hook for Satan today. On every level of life. It's you're missing out on the experience. You know, you have kids, even you growing up. Hey, hey mom, dad, can I, can I go to this party? No, you can't go. Because I know who's there. Well, come on. Come on. And, and what's, what's the issue? What's the issue? There's a tree out there. Uh, what's the issue? They're missing out on something, right? All the friends, all the fun, they're missing out on something. Oh, I want to go to this movie. I want to be there the first day it comes out. Why? You want the experience. That's Satan's hook. That, that, that is, that's, what it, that's the attraction. You know, it reminds me of a little boy who desperately wanted a 10-speed. And so he's, you know, he's 
saving all of his nickels, his quarters, his dollars. Man, he is trying to save up for his bike. And, and, and time goes on, and, and he's asking God, oh, Lord, please help me save my money. And, and each night he'd kneel down beside his bed and he'd pray, Dear Lord, please, please help me save my money for a new bike. And please, Lord, don't let that ice cream truck come down the street tomorrow. Please, Lord. <laughs> Temptations, right? Temptations. As I mentioned earlier, there are many times throughout the scripture where we're told, be not deceived. We're a hard-headed group. Don't be deceived. The same word was used in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators gives us a list of folks who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why do you think he gives us this list? Because you and I want to be more gracious than God. Because, I mean, we, we talk about homosexuals. I don't hate them. I truly don't hate them. As a matter of fact, I, I actually grieve for them. I grieve for them. But people will accuse you and say, you're so unloving. You turn this around. What do you mean I'm unloving? God loves them. But they turn everything around and make you look like you're the intolerant one. But the question is, are we more gracious than God? He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love verse 11. It says, and such were some of you. These are people that were pulled out of the world. Homosexuals, drunkards, covetous. They go to heaven. But they were saved. That's the difference. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. This word is also used to warn us, warn us of how evil company will influence and corrupt you. You know, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. It's also used in Galatians 6.7 regarding the consequences of one's actions. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. It's a warning. In other words, don't be fooled, gang. Sin will come in. It'll cloud your judgment. Don't be deceived. And you get back on track. The issue is we're all candidates for self-deception or being misled. Otherwise, the warnings wouldn't be there, right? We often give, I really believe, we give Satan way too much credit when it's really our own doing. We're the ones at fault. Oh, the devil made me do it. I remember I, I used to work for a, uh, a pool company and uh they're a christian couple and they had a son and uh you know kids start to figure things out says why did you do it the devil made me do it oh really she pulled out her belt she goes i'm gonna beat the devil out of you now <laughs> do not be deceived right who are we fooling and we play that game with ourselves don't we we get real close to the edge. We get, we get as close as we can. I, I may have shared this with you before. I remember years and years ago, uh, they did this study where they took, uh, they went to an elementary school, and they had a fence up. And during playtime, where were all the kids? Hanging on the fence. No one in the middle. They took the fence down for a week. Guess where all the kids were? In the center. The next week, they put the fence up. Guess where they were at? on the fence you see that as close as they could to get outside that's you and i that's what we do that's that's our bent okay that's our sinful nature and here we have james under the inspiration of the holy spirit is declaring that temptations which we will experience are vastly different than god's benevolence why first because satan as we saw in the garden of eden he exploits the nature of man 
and corrupts the image of God. Secondly, our flesh is weak and is predisposed to sin. Third, God is not the author of sin. He wants us to understand that. God is not the author of sin. James is very clear, especially in that last point. It reminds me so well, of a, obviously, of a, of a well-known doctrine, and that's Calvinism. You say, oh, great, here we go. We're going to talk about that doctrine. Well, it's important for you to know. There are those within that camp which would suggest that God is the author of sin. Now, on the, on the surface, they'll say, oh, no, we would never agree with you that God is the author of sin, but they, in fact, do. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, R.C. Sproul and Arthur Pink believe on the issue of the depravity man that ultimately sin originated with God. Why? Because after all, nothing operates outside the decrees of God. That means God's in control of everything. Think about that. I'll get to that in a few moments. God is in control. So if he's in control of everything, therefore then he is the author of sin. R.C. Sproul in his book, Almighty Overall, said that God secretly wanted Adam and sin, I'm sorry, Adam and Eve to sin. Notice that? Let me say that again. God secretly wanted Adam and Eve to sin and gave them the desire to sin because he wanted objects upon which to pour his wrath. You see, they believe that here God has elected a group of people to go to heaven and he's elected those to damnation. And the justification is, if you ask them, well, then why did he elect these people to go to hell? He says, how else can he demonstrate his justice? Whoa. He's created billions and billions and billions of people to demonstrate he's just. That doesn't fit. Furthermore, he says, this is what he says. I'm not accusing God of sinning. I'm suggesting that he created sin. Semantics. As if creating sin and sinning were two different things. I mean, what is a sinner? A sinner is someone who creates sin. And when a being originates sins through their own free will, they're sinning and consequently become a sinner. If a person says that God created sin, then they are in fact accusing God of being the author of sin. But my Bible explicitly says that the Lord will not make or fashion iniquity. Consider Zephaniah 3.5. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust shows no shame. Isn't that interesting? He never fails. There is no unrighteousness with him. Let me put it to you in a different way so you can see how their logic works. If I asked you, is God in control of everything? What would your answer be? Yes, right? And if I asked you, does he orchestrate even the trivial things in one's life? You'd have to say yes, right? Why? Because if he controls the universe, then certainly he has to control everything to stay consistent with his character. But there's a flaw to that logic. They assume since God controls everything, that nothing could act outside his control. Therefore, he also introduced sin and Satan to cause the fall of Adam. Because, again, nothing acts outside of his decrees or his control. Therefore, conclusion, he is the author of sin. God is responsible for the fall of man, yet my Bible says there is no unrighteousness with God. None. You can't have it both ways. The God of Calvinism is, in fact, a limited God. Well, what do you mean by a limited God? Well, you see, the God they propose has to control everything. That means he has to control every, everyone's actions. That means when you got in the car, you started your car, drove to work, he controlled the lights, he controlled the traffic, he controlled every iota of your life. And not only yours, but all the several billion people on this planet. Okay? 
Because we have to say, well, he's in control of everything. And nothing can act again without him controlling it. But let me propose to you, that's a small God. Whoa, what do you mean by that? Let me tell you why. The God I believe in can still maintain the universe and allow man his free will to act, to think, to make decisions. I propose to you, which is the bigger God? The one who has to control everything, even your will, or the one who maintains everything and allows man to act freely? You see, that's the bigger God. If God says, I can control the whole universe and allow you to have a free will, that's the bigger God. But the other one they propose says he has to control everything, everything in life. And you don't have a free will, which is the bigger God. That's where Calvinism falls short. So what do I tell my Calvinist brothers? Do not be deceived over this doctrine. Do not be deceived. Yet, How many are misled? So what's the deception? That we might consider things which attract or justify our flesh as though they originate from God. But how do we make that distinction? The next verse will answer that question. But I have a few questions for you to consider. What do you do to ensure you're not being deceived internally or externally in your life? What is it you do to safeguard yourself? What precautions do you take? Do you throw caution to the wind and just, hey, let it go? Or do you spend time in deep thought? Something we don't really do today, do we? You know, um, most of you know me. I'm not that great of a person. Who's that? (laughs) Um, But you know what I've done recently in the last two weeks? Don't watch TV. Turn off my radio. Turn off all the music. Don't turn on the computer. Matter of fact, I limit my phone. I turn everything off because I found out that I'm really distracted. Even though I'm reading, I'm praying, but I'm not thinking deeply on the things of God. And God says, that's right. You need to meditate on my word. And that has been such a benefit for me. I'm like, Lord, I'm, you know, I just want to be open to what you have. And thoughts come, the thoughts start coming. And you begin to see how things connect. And I'm like, you know, thank you, Lord. I'm not being distracted with the stuff of the world. I mean, there's enough to distract you, your kids and the, you know, the day-to-day things, the bills and all those things. I don't need other things to distract me. I mean, I get in the car and my kids are like, no radio, nope. And they're reaching the trunk, go, nope, nope, we're going to talk. We would do well to do that. The world is ready to speak to you. Often we listen. Philippians 4, 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, notice, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Proverbs 4, 23 Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So how do you keep your heart with all diligence? Word of God. But what do you do in your life? That's the question I'm asking because that's a real challenge for a lot of us. We'll leave here. I say, that was great. You know, I'll go home and all of a sudden you're back to doing the thing and you know, your things. And, but what are you doing to guard your hearts? What are you cutting out in your life? You see? I'm reading more and praying more. That's that's good. What else are you doing? You see, I have to I have to ensure this. I have to protect this. I have to be the a sentinel of my own heart. James says, I love this. The latter portion of verse 16 he says, My beloved brethren. And this caught my eye. And for some like I just started thinking about this. Okay, my beloved brethren. He used it three times in this epistle. He loves the believer. And secondly, he considers the brotherhood of believers beloved of God. He knows. He looks out into an audience and says, all these folks here are beloved of God. You are an endearment to the Lord. When I begin to look at you that way, I realize, man, you you mentioned, why does God love me? Because God loves you. And I realize God does love you. 
And who am I to say any, anything caustic towards my brother? And it changes the way you think and how you view people. Yeah, we're all imperfect. Yeah, we, we say dumb things. But when I really begin to look at you that way, it changes my outlook. It's a term of endearment, someone who's beloved. Again, I find this interesting because it's the same phrase used in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, where God speaks of his son saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And over and over again in the New Testament, there are 62 references to men and women who are beloved. Romans 16, 5, salute my beloved Eponidas. Romans 16, 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Romans 16, 12, greet the beloved Persis. And on and on we read, my beloved, my beloved, my beloved, you're the beloved. We're all beloved of the Lord. You're the beloved of the Lord. You're amongst the family of believers. You're not alone. How and how often do we feel alone? And yet, look at this room. We're not alone. And I wonder, as James wrote these words, how he remembered seeing Jesus express his love towards people. I mean, the touching of the leper when no one wanted to touch him. He reached out and takes hold of him. His willingness to go heal the centurion servant whom no Jew would dare enter his home. Yet he was willing to go, wasn't he? He said, hey, let's go. No, 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 no. He stops him. But he's willing. And I'm sure as James is thinking about these things, he's seeing those things. And then he confronts a mob ready to stone the adulterous woman, the one who caught up in adultery. And yet he says to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And you guys sit there, and I'm, I'm just thinking... You're sitting there seeing this. And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. Jesus, he is the epitome of love. And James saw it. So when he looks at you, he says, you're beloved. He understands that. I'm sure he just recounts in his mind's eye how he looked at people, how he loved on them. Have you forgotten that you're dearly loved of the Lord? Or you think that maybe God is just kind of on vacation? He's got more important things. <laughs> you know, I've learned to, to, at least in my life, that when I, when I consider God, he treats me like as if I'm the only person on the face of the planet. I know I'm not, but I know that's the love he has for us. He looks at you and he treats you like you're the only person on the face of the planet. What does the scripture tell us? That his thoughts towards us are like the sands of the seashore. He can't stop thinking about you. And yet Satan comes in and he goes, are you kidding me? And he destroys that image. Now that we look at the protection, let's look at the presence. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God's goodness stands in complete contrast to the temptations we face. Again, temptations allure the flesh, they elicit the desires, yet God's benevolence is completely different. He is benevolent. He is good. Notice in verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. These gifts are distinct from rewards we receive at the Bema Seat of Christ. The gifts are for the here and now, while the rewards we're going to get in heaven are for our service here on earth. Two, di two distinct things. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Notice the nature and source of the gift. The gift is good and perfect. Now, when we think of a gift, I mean, a gift carries the idea of something given. A gift, is, by definition, is undeserved or unmerited. They are given out of love towards a recipient. And how many times have you received a gift totally unexpected? 
You ever received a gift that way? And how much more value did it have when you received it unexpectedly? You go, man, I didn't deserve that. I, no, I can't, you know, and is I won't say it here, but there's someone who came yesterday. And a couple of guys collected some money because they know he was homeless. And he came in yesterday and he says, I, I as much as I appreciate it, I, I don't want to take it. And I had to fight him over it. I go, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to put it away. I said, you need to be able to receive it. I, I can't take it. And here's a man who, who I know his story. He's telling me that through the years, he's given so much to so many. And yet he's unwilling to receive it. And I said, you need to take it. He goes, why can you use maybe $19 of it? I go, no, you need to take the whole thing. Every good and perfect gift is from above. I said, you need to be able to take it. And with tears, he left here because he felt guilt. I said, you don't have to receive it with guilt. God's good to you. So, and what a contrast. What a contrast. Unlike temptations, God's gifts are good and perfect. You know, Satan never gives any gifts. The only thing he offers is a bait and hook. It's the only thing he does. James presents for us several facts about the goodness of God. One, God gives only good gifts. He only gives good gifts. Notice they are good and perfect gifts. The word good is the word agathon. It means good constitution or nature. But more importantly, it's the, the, the beneficial effects that come with it. And the word perfect means it has been completed. It is a finished product. In other words, he's not going to give you a halfer. It's like half a burger. He's not going to give you half a burger. Okay? It, it's, it's, a com, it's a completed work. It's a complete gift. It's a good gift. God only gives good things. Notice, God gets the credit for everything that is good. If it doesn't come from him, it's probably tainted. If it comes from him, from him then you know it's good, even though we may not see it immediately. You know, uh, I think we've all experienced that. We know that somehow in our life, God does bless us. He gives us things. And we, not, we don't see it sometimes. And sometimes we, we suffer trials and we think, what benefit is there in this? How is this a good thing? Well, look at Job. You know the story. Let's turn to Job chapter 1. That's in the back of the Bible there, Sam. For those of you who don't know, he walked up and he says, <clears throat> Xavier just called me. He wants me to teach. I said, oh, really? <laughs> we like to have fun here, so. Job chapter 1. We'll start with verse 7. And it says here, now there was a day, I'm sorry, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God? For nothing. Interesting how uh, Satan can tell the truth, right? He knows when to tell the truth. And then he says here, and, and I want you to pay attention to these verses because Satan really begins to tell the truth here. He says, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Notice, he's asking God to do this. Notice that? And, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Interesting. Notice Satan even tells us 
in this narrative that everything good that Job has is from God. Isn't that interesting? All the good that he has originated with God. God's good. Satan knows that. He knows. We don't know he's good often, but he is good. Which should tell you and I something. The house you live in, the possessions you have, the job you have, they're all given to you by God. The family you have, the kids, the wife. Oh, you said, well, no, no, wait, stop right there. No, the wife you have, the husband you have. God is good. He's good. And the story goes on. Satan, Satan immediately goes to work. He begins to systematically destroy his life. He thought that by taking all his possessions, he would then curse God. But Satan made a fatal mistake. He attacked someone whose character wasn't anchored in his possessions, but rather was anchored in the source of the one who gave him those possessions. You need to understand that tonight. If you're not anchored to that person, then you're going to vacillate in the wind. You're going to be tossed to and fro. You should be anchored to the one who's the one blessing you. That's where we need to be anchored to. And, and notice, which I find interesting, is, is, is the next response. Job's next response. Look at verse 21. What does he say? And he said, after all that he lost, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. Notice, who's the giver? The Lord gave. I, I didn't work for this. I didn't do this. I didn't manufacture all this wealth. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? We begin to just ponder on, on the reality that everything I have. I came in this place naked. And I'm going to leave naked. Someone once said, you know, even in your dreams, we're going to leave here the same way we came in, naked. We can't even extrapolate anything from our dreams. Isn't that interesting? We can dream something, but we can't even take anything from our dreams, let alone anything off this planet. Everything we have is because of him. He is good. What a great perspective to have, acknowledging that all that I have comes from him. Do you thank God for your possessions? Do you even acknowledge the very food that you eat came from him? Or worse yet, are you like the world and that God is indebted to you? That he owes you? Notice too that God is a constant giver. Notice the verse says that these gifts come from where? Above. They come from above. The tense tells us it keeps on coming down. It's not a one-time event. It keeps coming down. God keeps giving and he keeps on giving. He is a constant giver. Unfortunately, far too often, we miss it. We often miss that what he sends down. What an amazing God we serve. He is constantly providing and he's constantly giving. You know, I often run into Christians who have come into financial hardship. Sometimes to no fault of their own and sometimes it is. And sometimes the complaint is, where's God? Where is God? And I try to walk them through the scripture and you know, tell them that God is God of the impossible. And ultimately, he has a plan. I'm not going to get in the way. Yeah, I can give you money, but what does that accomplish? What is God really trying to do? And sometimes, you know, we do give because God puts it in our heart. But it's not always a wise thing. Then there are those who without fanfare want nothing. We know there's a need and they don't want it. There's a legitimate need, but they don't want it. And you ask them why, they say, I'm waiting upon the Lord. It's a sign of maturity. Because they want God to get the glory. They don't want man to taint it and get in the way. Now I understand we're to bear one of those burdens. And that's legitimate at times but it's being open to what maybe God wants to do in my life. Third, God doesn't change. As I mentioned earlier, he is the father of lights. With him, there's no variation. In other words, 
He doesn't have a dark side. There's no shadow of him. God's character and goodness is unchanging. There's no variation with him. He cannot learn because he already knows all things. He cannot commit evil because he is holy. He cannot improve because he is already perfect. He is the unchanging God. Therefore, therefore, we don't ever really want to doubt or question his love for us, especially when things become difficult. You see, we begin to doubt because we question his character, don't we? Or his goodness. That's, that's the time the enemy lo- loves to exploit. The term father of lights is coined from, a specific, from specific lights. The celestial lights. The sun, the moon, the stars. Nonetheless, with God, there's never any shadow with him. No variation. He doesn't change. You know, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is a message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So when we see God, not that we do, but there's no shadow. There's no darkness. You ever think about anything in your life, you can look around, something always casts a shadow. In him, there's no darkness, there's no shadow. He doesn't change. And this is a very important truth. How so, you might ask. Well, there are those who contend that one's experience with God supersedes our orthodox view of who God is, how he's revealed himself to man. Thus, one, one man's experience can be added to the revelation of Scripture. God help us. If you think that your you know, encounter with God supersedes God's revelation, you need help. But there are those who believe it. These people usually have a low view of Scripture. They don't believe the Scripture is infallible. And this is a real tragedy in our churches today. We have churches filled with pastors who have a low regard for Scripture. They don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Ultimately, they butchered the Scripture to fill their needs. The bottom line is if Scripture can change, therefore, logically, God can change. One of the movements today is a seeker-friendly church or the emergent church. The focus of these churches is to discover. Their objective is to discover what your need is. And they want to meet it. Because after all, Jesus came to the earth because he saw your ultimate need. Therefore, they propose to do the same thing. They want to meet your need. Sounds good, doesn't it? But the fact of the matter lies in the way they see your need versus the way God sees your need. It's completely different. Now, I have a few quotes, and I, I think um, you should take heed to this. Uh, <laughs> Lee Strobel says, Our challenge, then, is to help this new generation of unchurched Harrys. He uses the term unchurched Harrys and Marys. Okay? So he uses these, two, these terms loosely. He says, uh, Again, our challenge then is to help this new generation of unchurched Harrys understand that Christianity does work. That is, that the God of the Bible offers us supernatural wisdom and assistance in our struggles, our difficulties, and recovery from our past hurts. Again, the past. Harry simply will not be attracted to Christ if we present him with a biblical gospel. It won't help him. Interesting. We must then change the message in order to make it more uh, palatable to this generation of ultra-self-centered Harrys and Marys. What worked at one time simply does not work to today's Harry. David Wells has nailed down the prevailing attitude when he writes, What our culture suggests is that all the greatest treasures of life are at hand, quite simply, in the self. Religious man was not born to be saved, but psychological man was born to be pleased. I believe has been replaced by I feel. And they really believe this. Furthermore, he states, if you discover that unchurched Harry suffers from a sagging self-esteem, you can tell him how your own self-esteem has soared ever since you learned how much you matter to God. Notice they, they're, they're switching everything around. How you matter to God. Never mind that the concept of self-esteem is foreign to the Bible. Even against it, Never mind that the real issue that Harry struggles with, according to the Bible, and this is key, this is the struggle, 
is pride, not self-esteem. The gospel is now gift-wrapped to offer Harry what he has been conditioned to believe he needs. Not everybody is in need of an ego boost. However, some are looking for thrills, excitement, and adventure. Fortunately for the quick-minded evangelist, the gospel resembles a chameleon, taking whatever shade is needed. Strobel assures such thrill-seekers that he learned that there is more, nothing more exciting, more challenging, and more adventure-packed than living as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I, I sometimes want to laugh at this because it, you read you read their literature and you're just going, you, what planet are you from? What I found, this is least trouble, is that there's a big difference between thil, th- thrills and thrills that fulfill. So now Jesus Christ can be offered as a big thrill, the ultimate in excitement. That's what they're selling. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not change. They've changed the gospel. It went from acknowledging, and this is what's important. They went from acknowledging the holiness, the righteousness of the almighty God, who we stand in stark contrast to that as sinners, understanding that our righteousness is like filthy rags. But they've turned it around. They're saying God is here to serve your needs. No, 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 no. When I come to church, I acknowledge the fact that there's a holy God, and I am puny. I'm here to worship Him because He is worthy, not me. And we're missing that. The church at large is missing that. We're, we're small. I need God. He doesn't need me. I need Him. Paul warned the Galatians. He said, but even though we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. You guys know what that accursed means. Worst form of damnation. God is unchanging. We would be wise to filter the things in our lives through the word of God to ensure whether those things are of him. Some things are obviously easily identifiable and some are not. They require more inspection. Do me a favor. The next time you're tempted, I want you to do a few things. Okay. Throttle back. I want you to meditate, ponder, and contemplate the Word of God. Contemplate who He is on His goodness and His love for you. We don't do that. The next time you're tempted, do that. Ponder on his goodness and his love for you. If you think you need more or need of something, then wait upon him to provide it. Okay? And that's hard to do in our fat, our high-paced world. But it's the biblical thing to do. The hard thing for us is to actually be patient. Never settle for Satan's ploys. His tactic is is predicated on immediate gratification. God, on the other hand, always has something better, but it's predicated upon patience. He wants us to wait. It would never violate his character. He wants us to wait upon him. You know, how many times do we tell our kids, just be patient? Why? You have enough life experience under under your belt to know the outcome. You tell them to wait. and, And what's their problem? They want it here and now. They want it right now. And God is no different. He tells us the same thing. Just wait. I have something better for you. Well, now we've seen the protection. We've seen the the presence. Let's look at the practical, verses 18 through 20. It says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Notice verse 18 that is through God's word where the new birth occurs. 1 Peter 1.23 states, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. John 3, 6 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The spirit of God uses the scripture to initiate the new birth. You know, I love Romans ten seventeen. Why? Because it says, so then faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how faith comes. I don't have to manufacture anything. I don't have to work at it. It's hearing the word of God. Believing 
his word. And that's all God wants me to do. He wants me to believe his word. And again, I can see James he's, as he's contemplating, as he's thinking, seeing the people flock around Jesus, listening to his brother, hearing the words of God coming out of a mouth of a man. He said, man, he is speaking the words of God. And he, spe- he still speaks today, doesn't he? He still speaks. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Swift to hear, number one. God gives us two ears so we could pick up more, doesn't he? And more quickly. He didn't give us two mouths to speak. Okay? The necessity is two ears that we might listen more intently. Isn't it interesting that he uses our eyes and our ears to gather information? He doesn't use our mouth. And obviously, in case we miss it on one side of our head, then we pick it up on the other. That's the way God designed us. But notice we're supposed to be quick to hear, not quick to speak. Nor are we to be quick to anger. And the word means to listen, to understand, to give heed. And I believe he's, he's re- really referring to discernment. That's, that's my opinion. You know, as conversations go, you know, sometimes they can go south really quick, right? You're in a conversation, talk to someone, all of a sudden you're going, that's not a good conversation. You're listening. You go, I'm out of here. It's, it's not good for me. I'm understanding. Quick to hear. But then there are those conversations that are edifying. I'm there. It's quick to hear. I want to hear. I want to be built up. So it's important to be discerning. To understand what's being said and to make a decision. How about slow to speak? Oh, sorry, ladies. Um, You win, hands down. I'm giving you this. Slow to speak. Uh, I'm being facetious, of course. He's not saying to speak slowly. He's saying we shouldn't be quick to speak. You know, Proverbs 10:19 says, "He that refrains his lips is wise." He that refrains his lips is wise. Amen to that. I've never gotten in trouble for opening or for keeping my mouth shut. Have you? I've never gotten in trouble for keeping my mouth shut. I've gotten in trouble for flapping the gums. Right? I think all of us have experienced that. We usually get into trouble because we do say something stupid. And once we say it, it ain't coming back. You can't unring that bell. Right? It's like that arrow. You let go, you can't, you can't call that arrow back. Again, the, prov- the Proverbs refer to a man hasty in his words. Proverbs 29, 20 say, says, Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. There's also wisdom in knowing who you're talking to, who your audience is. Proverbs 23, 9 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Proverbs 26, 4 do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you what? Be like him. Right. There's always a benefit in taking your time to speak. And unfortunately, it took, me, it took later in life for me to do that. Often I get in trouble because I want to be funny. And I realize I put my foot in my mouth. And I realize, you know what? It ain't that funny. And often I have to go apologize. It's like, you know, you know, my wife and I, we have these conversations and the funny part is it, she knows I have no problem apologizing. My wife, anyway, <laughs> she'll apologize. It just takes her a couple weeks. Um, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Speaking of which, slow to anger. Here we are. Number three, slow to anger. This one's for the men. OK, I think we can all agree that we kind of, you know, the scale slides more on our side than for the women. Not that women can't. Um, Men have a propensity to blow their stack. I've seen this especially in marriages. And you know what the heart of the issue is for for marriages? This issue that every man needs. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Hear the wives say, turn there quickly. 
5.33 says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in so particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see, notice, that she respects her husband. The issue is always linked to how a wife lacks respect for her husband. This is our greatest need as men. You say, that sounds kind of egotistical. No, it's not. Let me, I'll explain to you why. You know, as I sit there and I counsel couples across my desk, 95% of the time, it all goes back to that. She doesn't appreciate what I do. She doesn't respect what I do. It's an acknowledgement of what he does. And that is man's great, a husband's greatest need. And I tell him, well, you know what? That is, that is his need. You can step all over me, you can do whatever you want, but that one area, that one button that's not being pushed, it's that area that he needs to be respected. That's it. You know, I don't care if my wife doesn't do That doesn't bother me. But it's an acknowledgement. What about the wife? What angers her? Husband's attention. We don't pay attention to our wives. We don't hear them. My wife wants me to hear her. And I make it my effort to sit down and actually listen to her. Because if I want her to respect me, then I need to listen to her. I need to be willing, as the scripture says, to lay down my life for her. You know, I think on the surface, we're all willing to say, hey, I'm willing to die for my wife, but I'm not willing to listen to her. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, we know about that one. <laughs> Ephesians 5.28 says, The husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, I'll ask the guys, what does that verse mean to you? And I kid you not, you know what the majority of the response is? I'm supposed to love myself. <laughs> no! Let's go back and let's read that again. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What's the idea behind this? It means the same energy that you use to love yourself. Hey, let's redirect it towards our wife. Because we already love ourselves. That's the issue. So let's spread some love around. Let's go back and redirect that love towards our spouse. Okay. Slow to anger. Proverbs 14, 29 says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. We need to control our emotions. We need to take a step back. Your anger in time will eventually land you in trouble. And then you'll sit there. How many times have you banged the desk, kicked the door, walked out in front of people and realized, now they think I'm a jerk. They've seen you explode. And you have no way of ventilating that anger. You, don't, you have no way of dealing with your anger. And this is a major problem. And yet God says, you know what? I come in. I could help you in this area. But you got to let me. you got to let me take it. We just have this common problem of having a knee-jerk reaction by our anger. It destroys our character and damages others. Notice verse 20. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'll tell you what this verse doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be angry with sin. There is a godly anger we can possess. Ephesians 4.26 tells us that. Why doesn't man's anger produce the righteousness of God? Because we may not possess all the facts. Second, it can misrepresent God. Do you remember what happened to Moses? When the people came seeking water, God instructed Moses to speak to the rock instead of beating it. And Moses moved with anger because the constant complaining proceeded to beat the rock. Now, water came out not because Moses beat it, but because God saw the need. There was a real need, and he fulfilled that need. But what was the consequence for Moses misrepresenting God? He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. That one moment of anger. And yet we're told he was the most meekest man in all the earth, right? 
failed in that one area. And you and I can get to a place where that one event can blow it. We're just one decision away from destroying our life. One decision. One decision. We need to be more like the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And again, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. And Lord, this book of James. And Lord, Lord, just this, the warning, Lord, to not be deceived, Lord. Lord, in knowing who you are, the nature of exactly who you are, Lord, that you're good. And you constantly dispense good gifts. You're always concerned for our well-being. And Lord, you desire, Lord, that you would change the inner man. That, Lord, we we wouldn't be angry. Lord, we would be, we would be slow to speak. But Lord, we'd be quick to hear. So Lord, help, help us, Lord, in our weakness. I lift up everybody here tonight, Lord, as we walk away, Lord, that it wouldn't, this study wouldn't just be insignificant, Lord, but you would move and just remind us, Lord, of these things. And so, Father, we just thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.